0: The Olympics are, or so they say, the greatest show on earth. There is uh, 207 countries participating, 10,000 athletes, depending on what happens with Russia. 14.5 billion pounds have been spent. It's an amazing amount of money that has been spent. And over two weeks, you have a whole host of events. Now, come on, we're small so we can do this. What's your favorite event to watch? Answers, please. What do you love watching? 100 metres, 100 metres, the blue ribbon. Men and women, I'm sure. Anything else? Dan, smirking there? 100 metres, Andy? Relays, because chaos can happen. Ribbon, The curling. You might have to wait a while for that until it gets a bit colder. Curling in Rio could be interesting. I like water polo, I think it's amazing. They can hold their breath and chuck that thing around. and. Golf? How has that got into the Olympics? I, I like finding out the obs- obscure sport that's kind of shoehorned in. So this becomes a bit of a, a moth of a two weeks of athletics, and athletics gets forgotten, and football's in there, um, shooting. I like a bit of clay pigeon shooting. It's a great skill. Gymnastics. Um, I like some painful things that have happened in gymnastics, but we'd better move on. That's probably why you like it. The, um, there's something lovely about the Olympics, but regardless of the discipline. There is something that every Olympiad strives for. I mean, the amount of behind-the-scenes work that goes into every sport is something that really does take your breath away. It's it's dedication to the max. People getting up at silly o'clock every single day for most of their adult life to train, to think, to get help from uh, People with expertise in training, you know, sports psychologists, all these teams behind an individual or behind a group effort. There's something phenomenal. But why do they do it? You know, Steve Redgrave said, didn't he, if you see me in a nearer, uh, it's a canoe, its not quite right, near a rowing boat again, shoot me. Why do they do it? They do it for a verdict. <laughs> Every single person does it for a verdict. They do it for a gold medal. They do it to hear these words. You're the quickest. You've thrown that the farthest. You've shot that with the most accuracy. You as a team are the best. They all long for a verdict. The verdict against the clock, the approval of the chairman of the IOC, giving them the medal they all do it for a verdict and they will work tirelessly they will make huge sacrifices they will sacrifice relationally financially physically they sacrifice in terms of their career all four for a verdict and these two um, stories in Luke 18 are both they're about different things but verses 1 to 14 is a unit and two people that long for a verdict the first verdict is in verses 1 uh, to 8 it's a judicial verdict of of somebody going before a judge and that image is taken about someone pursuing the the rightness the appropriateness of of pursuing God for justice in prayer for an answer in prayer and then verse 9 we have a second uh, story that we're going to look at this morning about two people going up to a temple to pray both of them also want a verdict And they they act in a different way. And whether you're an athlete, whether you're a praying person, whether you are whoever you are this morning, coming to church for the first time or the umpteenth time, we all long for, for a verdict. It's a universal issue. It's a universal problem. And I want us to think about that, this universal problem of of righteousness, of a verdict that we receive from, from somebody, and ultimately it's God. But why have we got this problem? It's the problem, verse 9, of of righteousness. We've we've met these characters before in Luke's Gospel. Verse 9, Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in their righteousness, who trusted in themselves rather, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt, or they looked down on people. Who are these people? It's the Pharisees. We know that from the other accounts in Luke's Gospel where They walk around with flowing robes. They look down on certain people. They criticise Jesus for the people that he mixes with. And they always trust in themselves for their own righteousness, for their own justification. These are the people that Jesus is speaking to in verse 9. But this word righteousness, unless we have a Christian background, we can easily check out what does that mean. No one uses that word anymore. I mean, when was the last time you heard that used outside of a Christian meeting? It's just not used. But the word verdict is. And this idea, Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew, Greek, this idea of righteousness means to be approved. That there is a, a bar that is set and it's to reach that attainment, it's to be approved. It's to, another meaning, is to, righteousness means to be accepted. It's uh, to meet a certain standard. It's to pass a certain scrutiny. So let me take you all the way back to GCSEs. I'll be respectful. Let me take you back even further to O-levels, proper exams. And you remember that time, don't you, when you received that envelope, whether you went to school to pick it up or it was emailed to your parents. You remember that time when you ripped it open and you looked and hopefully you passed some. Hopefully you passed some really well and you felt the relief, the satisfaction, the contentment of work put in and work that received. It received an award and if you've got to pass and if you've passed really well, O-levels, A-levels, A-levels, GCSEs, driving tests. We all wanted that approval, that acceptance, that reward. We wanted righteousness. We wanted to, to meet the standard of the test. It happens out there a lot in the sporting world. It happens out there a lot in the professional world and in the academic world. But it also happens relationally, unless we think it's just a distant thing. It's a remote thing. It happens relationally. There is a film called The Fisher King, starring Amanda Plummer and also Robin Williams. The two main characters are Parry, played by Robin Williams, and Amanda Plummer plays a a very pretty lady called Lydia. Lydia is very shy. She's low on self-esteem. She is very afraid of letting people in. And uh, the key kind of premise of the story is, will this relationship work between Lydia and Parry? They get to the uh, front steps of uh, Lydia's house, and there's a conversation that I want to read to you between Lydia and Parry. At the end of the date, at the stairs of her apartment, Lydia says, I have a wonderful time tonight. I had a wonderful time. I never wanna see you again. Robin Williams says, what, why? Well, this is what's gonna happen, Lydia says. This is how it works. we we'll exchange phone numbers tonight and then you'll leave and then I'll go to work and I'll feel so good for one day. Then you won't call, and then you won't call again, and then you'll never call, and ever so slowly, I'll turn into a piece of dirt. I don't even know why I'm putting myself through this tonight. It was very nice to meet you, goodbye, and she goes to slam the door. Parry Robin Williams grabs her by the wrist and says, Wait, wait. I've got a confession to make. You're married, she says. No, you're divorced. No. Here's my confession, says Parry. I already know all about you. And it's not just from tonight. I know you hate your job, I know you don't have many friends. I know you feel uncoordinated. I know you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. I know all about you, but I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since spice racks. I would be happy to be knocked out several times if I could just have that first kiss again. And I won't, and I won't, and I won't be distant. And I'll always call you, I will always call if you let me." Lydia wants a verdict. She wants approval. She wants acceptance. It's not a distant thing, it's something that we all long for. We want to be known and loved, our greatest longing and our greatest fear. To be known intimately and to be loved. We don't want to meddle after 100 meters unless you're an athlete. But each one of us has this problem. We all want to know that we're approved of, that we're valued, that somebody loves us to the core. We all want that, and it's a problem we face. But where does it come from? The Bible says it comes from the very beginning. There was a time when humanity enjoyed being known intimately and being loved perfectly. In Genesis one and two, when God walked in the cool of the day, when humanity knew God intimately, And God knew humanity perfectly. When there was no need to feel ashamed. Or to wonder if you're loved or not. Or to wear loincloths or clothes. To cover up the bits that we don't want anyone else to see. Shame was not known. Love was known perfectly. God was known intimately. But this problem came when we lost our certainty of God's approval. We wanted to be our own masters. And not bow to his loving rule. And since that point. Since that point of enmity and sin and rebellion and turning our back on God and wanting to be in charge of our own future, we've struggled with shame. We've struggled with guilt. We want approval from other people because we know we don't have it from God anymore because of our guilt and sin that we struggle with. And that's the problem of righteousness that we will never, we'll never find that need met unless we return to God. That's the news of the gospel. We want to uh, pass a scrutiny. We desperately want a verdict. And Jesus says, let me tell you one way that doesn't work and that will never work. And let me tell you one way that will work. And he says that beginning in verse 9. There are two people who come to a temple to pray. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. If that's the problem, let's look at the first way that people seek to gain this approval, to gain acceptance, to gain a positive verdict from God. To quote Tim Keller, one is outside in. One's concerned with an outward appearance. Second point, look at the first man. He comes up to the temple to pray, verse 10, and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like a robber's, I'm not like evildoers. That means uh, cheats or embezzlers. I'm not even like an an adulterer. I'm not even like this guy, the tax collector, because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth away of all I get. First of all, we learn about this man. He's a Pharisee. He was a a religious person. He was concerned with his outward appearance. He he wanted to know God, but he wanted to know God on his own terms. He's not a baddie. He's not someone that would get booed in a pantomime. He's someone who was an upright religious person, had a good moral standing, a, a strong religious record. But as we've seen before in Luke's Gospel, and all the Gospels, the way he understood sin was something that was outside. It was something that could be caught. It was something that could be um, avoided if you avoided contact with the right people or the wrong people, depending on how you look at it. You could avoid sin by going to the right places and not the wrong, by eating the right food and not the wrong food, and so on. And look at what he says. To paraphrase, I do not rob, I don't commit adultery, I don't cheat, I give my money away, I give 10% away to the church and to the poor. I fast, he refers to, uh, which means I pray twice a week in special ways. I go to church, I worship God, and I always keep my religious uh, ticks made. It's absolutely external in how he understands what it means to gain God's approval, to gain a positive verdict, to pass the test. It's about keeping your ducks in a row and doing the right things. It's about behaviour. It's about practices. It's about morals. It's about religiosity and keeping the law. Notice the second thing, if that's the first thing. It's also very competitive. It's about comparison. Look at what he says, verse 11. He stood by himself. He stood and prayed by himself. Almost certainly he's standing away from everybody else. He's away from the people that are sinners. He's away from the people that uh, he doesn't want to be associated with. And he's away from them, but he's probably, he's probably closer to the altar. He's probably closer to the centre of things. I'm going to be away from the people that I don't want to be associated with, but I do want to become closer to you, God. So I'll go closer to the altar. That's probably what he's saying and externally with his actions, with his words, with his practices, he's revealing what's going on in his heart. I'm not like them, I'm better than them. It's comparison and it's competitive. Here's what he's saying, verse 11. His actions reveal what's going on in his heart. Verse nine, I'm so much better. I'm looking down on everybody else, verses 11 and 12. I'm not like these other people. Why? Why is he better? Well, let's look at what he says. I don't rob. Well, that's in the Bible, right? It says I don't steal. So that's the first tick. Um, I don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. That's another of the Ten Commandments. So that's, that's two ticks to him. I tithe. Well, that's in the Bible as well. I give 10% of my money away to religious courses to, to call causes rather not causes uh, to care for people to be responsible for those in need but I don't just give money away look at what he says I fast twice a week did you notice that? he slipped that in there now that's not in the Bible that's something he's just added in there to, to increase his moral standing to increase his performance you might fast once a week or even once a year but I fast twice a week I'm the Premier League I'm better than you. It's comparative, it's comparison, it's distancing himself from everybody else. You are sinners, I am not. His actions are revealing his heart. Now the Bible does say something about fasting. Once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there would be fasting as part of the Mosaic Law. But here's a man who says that's not enough. I'm gonna put my own standards on so God is pleased with me. I'm gonna fast twice a week. I am very, very good. They are very, very bad. And all through the gospel we've seen this that Jesus tells parables or stories where there is a good person and there's a bad person. You remember back to Luke 15? There was two brothers, and one of them got lost. The bad one was the younger brother who went away and spent all his father's money. He wanted him dead and he wanted his inheritance now. And then in God's mercy, he came to his senses and he returned. But then there was the good brother, the older brother who stayed behind. Now, which one got rescued? The bad one, not the good one. And again, we see this lesson that's so important. Verse 12, you can give away 10% of your money. Verse 11, you cannot commit adultery. You can be a really good person. You can be a good husband, you can be a good man, you can uh, attend church, you can read your Bible, you can say your prayers, you can look with the veneer of a religiosity and perfectionism. But Jesus says, just as in Luke 15, there are two people, there are two sons. Here we've got another two people. and who gets rescued? Is it the good person? There are two ways to get lost, says Jesus. There is only one way to get saved. But notice how he prays, verse 11. It's not just about clothing and practices, it's also about speech. Verse 11, I thank you, Lord. And then afterwards you're expecting to hear about all the things that God has done for him. But that's the last time at the beginning of his sentence that God is mentioned. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like them. And on he goes. Even in his prayer, it's all about him. It's self-centred worship. God is not considered, God is not made reference to, just as a kind of a a footnote at the beginning. And then he talks about himself. Lord, I thank you that I am. Aren't I great? And what Jesus is saying here, just like Luke 15, is shocking. You would think that the good person would be made right with God, but actually it's the bad You would think it's the person with the religious clothes that God would approve if you're not used to Christian things and haven't read the Gospels but it's not the good person that gets approval it's the bad. It's not the good person who passes the verdict, it's the bad. The forgiven bad. The forgiven lost person. The person that cries out to God in humility, not the person who comes in their religious pride and says, God listen to me and look at what I've done. There are two different ways of being your own saviour. Look at what I've done God you deserve to save me there are two different ways of getting lost and over and over again Jesus is saying humble sinners find salvation proud religious people remain in their lostness and if that's the problem of this kind of outside inness, this veneer of religiosity this is not going very well for us so we better look at the second guy the lost person if we have such a problem if there are two ways to get lost then how do we attain this verdict how do we solve the problem of righteousness how do you solve the problem of approval that each one of us longs for and we will need especially when we can't get it ourselves wouldn't it be great if we could just rub our hands together and feel great when we look in the mirror wouldn't it be great if we can just go on a well-earned rest and then suddenly have a, an experience that we can just pay for just to uh, fill the cracks of our hearts and know that we are loved and know that we are known. But Jesus says, outside in will never work. You will never gain approval by running a race, by uh, playing water polo. That'll never work. You need to know the approval that comes only from me. And that's not outside in, number three. That's inside out. That's inside out. It begins from the inside. It begins with me. Look at the second man, verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's interesting to know if you've got a Bible. If you look back to chapter 17, verse 12 when you've got the story of the 10 lepers that we didn't have time for last week once again you see the same phrase the 10 lepers who who stood at a distance it's a sign of humility where you've got the first man who wants to uh, distance himself to say look at i'm not associated with those people i'm far away from them they're lower than me i'm religiously higher than them here we have a person who's who's so concerned with the state of his own heart that he doesn't want to be with people because of his humility, not his pride. Two similar actions, completely different heart motivations. And notice verse 13. God have mercy on me, a sinner. It actually says in the original language, God be merciful to me, the sinner. This man is not concerned with anybody else. He sees himself as the sinner. It's a, the definite answer artist- to. Ooh, that's exciting, this is down. He's um, concerned with himself and himself alone. It's very specific. He's not comparing himself like the first man. What he's really saying is this: "I know that I am lost and I desperately need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. He doesn't come to God in the temple getting closer to the altar to say, here's my religious CV, look at it. And it's like the old computer paper that's all joined. Look at the fasting that I've done. Look at the money that I've gave. Look at all the ways that I've kept your laws. He doesn't say anything of that. He says, I am the sinner. And I throw myself on your mercy. Verse 13, as Daniel said earlier, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is interesting. In the Greek language, there is a regular bog standard word for mercy. It's the word Elios. We see it down in the same chapter, verse 38. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus and he casts himself on his mercy and he says, verse 38, Luke 18, Jesus, son of David, have Elios on me. Have mercy on me. That's the normal word for mercy, but not here. It's very interesting. Here we have the tax collector in verse 13. He uses a different word, a longer word, halisterion. Halisterion. And it means, will you atone for me? Will you atone for me? He throws himself on God's mercy. He stands far away from everybody else. He's just concerned with his own heart and his own spiritual standing before God. And he says, I don't just need your mercy. I need atonement. I need my sins to be paid for all the way back in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament laws, the sacrificial system before Jesus came, there was the tabernacle. And it was there in the tabernacle and in the temple that God, by his Spirit, would dwell. Where? In the Holy of Holies, right in the very centre. And there in the Holy of Holies, there would be the Ark of the Covenant that contained the law, the Ten Commandments. And on top of it, it was their slab of gold called the Mercy Seat. What's it called? The Hilasterion. same word the place of mercy the place of atonement and once a year uh, the high priest would go in and he would offer a sacrifice and blood was shed and God's uh, justice was satisfied and mercy was symbolically seen as here is the sacrificial offering that atones that covers all your sins and because of that God can act (laughs) mercifully it's propitiation your sins being uh, covered it's atonement your sins being paid for. Two different words. And I'm sure that this was in this man's mind. God, I don't just need mercy. I need my sins paid for. God, hilasterion, have mercy on me. Is there any way for my sins to be paid for? And so this word is taken up in Hebrews two seventeen, where Jesus' high priestly ministry is just referred to before it's turned up into the max in chapters 9 to 11 in the book of Hebrews because Jesus came as the high priest not a, the high priest to serve God and to minister between God and his people by laying down his life as the sacrificial lamb and here he's saying Lord I need atonement for my sin verse 13 Now, how is that possible? because Jesus came not as a sinner, but as the sinner. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Jesus came to be nailed to a cross so that not just mercy, but atonement was made. He became the ultimate sinner. And friends, when you see that, that begins to unpick, that begins to unpick and analyse our need for approval. Think about this, Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you by laying down his life. Jesus made such atonement for you to such depth, to such perfection that now he can love you. Just like the first time, just like the garden, but even better. Do you get that? He made atonement for you so that he can love you. His love was shown by the fact that he made atonement for you. What does that mean? It means now that he can come in. He can come into your life right now. So there's no doubt. There's no religious ossity where you're just so concerned that perhaps I haven't done enough. And if I just pray more, if I just read more, if I just let more people know about Jesus, then God will love me when he returns or when I die and when I see his face. There's no anxiety when we see the cross and the gospel that God loves you now because of what he did then you've already got the verdict so that should be liberty that should be life because he loves you now and he can come into your life and he will always love you and he will always call and he knows you and loves you even more than spice racks that's the good news of the gospel but I don't want to let you in God you say I don't want you to know me I've sinned too much. And God says, I do know everything about you. And I will always call. And I will never let you down. And I will love you from here to the moon and back. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to think, did I live a good life? I've, I've had a bad week. You know like that, that game you used to play in the playground with the uh, petals? He loves me. He loves me not. That's completely foreign if you're a Christian. If you believe the gospel, he loves you. Put the flower down. He'll call everyone and he'll never let you go. I read a story this week about a man who was struggling to tell his friends about Jesus. One of the things I'm concerned about, uh, being eight months old now as a church, is to what degree are we actually engaging with our neighbours? And I read this story and I thought I'd share it with you because it links in here. There was a man and he was brought up in a very strict religious church. And he was crushed because he was told by his pastor, you need to be telling people about Jesus. But he had a big problem because he understood that, but he desperately needed people's approval and he didn't want to lose face, so he couldn't. So he was caught in this really tough situation of just thinking, I want to tell people about Jesus because I know that God won't love me enough if I don't. And, but I can't tell people about Jesus because I want people's approval, I want them to love me as well. And he was in a real problem. He was real uh, internal anxiety and guilt and shame all at the same time. And then one day he started to go to a different, different church and he said to the pastor, I have this real problem, I want to tell people about Jesus but I can't and he explained it. And he said these words to him. He said, do you know that when Jesus died he took away your sins as far as the east is from the west. He utterly approves of you, he loves you intimately, he knows you. Yes, but I'm not telling people about Jesus. He still loves you. He loves you in spite of that. You don't have to tell people about Jesus, this pastor said to this man, for God to love you more or less. You don't have to. Two weeks later, this man who was struggling to tell his people about Jesus was absolutely revolutionised. So that one of his friends said, hey, what did you say to Bill? Bill? Because he's going around telling everybody about Jesus. And the pastor said, I told him he didn't have to. I told him that Jesus loved him in spite of that. I told him that God loves him intimately, that he knows the depths of his heart and he loves him the same. If we were to get this, that God loves me and you more than spice racks, our motivation for doing everything would change. I wouldn't want to tell Paul and Celeste, my neighbour, about Jesus because I have to, like a mark on the side of an aeroplane fighter. I would want to radiate the beauty of Jesus because of what he's done for me. And my prayer and my passion would be to seek out an opportunity to invite them over for a barbecue because I long to tell the good news about what Jesus has done for me. The motivation is completely different. It's inside out because I already have God's approval in Jesus. So it liberates me. I can care for people, I can give my money away, I can love people, I can serve people. Not because I want their approval, because I've already got a verdict and it's the only one that counts. Let's pray. Father, we recognise that there are two ways to live. We can easily live for the world. We long to live for you just thinking of my own life, how long it has taken me to realise that uh, when we look at the cross, it's not just truth outside, it's deep approval and our loving verdict on the inside. Help us please never to doubt and never to lose the wonder of the cross and the deep love that you have for us. Love that nails uh, show and demonstrate as you were nailed to the cross, King Jesus. Love that means that your spirit was sent to dwell in our hearts so that now we have a foretaste of what we'll ultimately receive then. Help us not to strive for your approval because we already have it. But help us in light of your approval and love to live with a completely different motivation, a new passion, new priorities and a deep sense of joy and gratitude for all that Jesus you've done for us. Please help us to change, I pray. Amen.